Um, we're going to do our scripture reading for uh, this morning, which is coming out of Matthew 6, 25 through 34. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. If you have a Bible app, go ahead and uh, open that up and, and uh, navigate to that section. And it reads, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you would put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall, we, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. All right. Anxiety. I'm going to just jump right into this. My wife, uh, it's a weird thing you do when you're in a pastor's family. Last night we were laying in bed and she said, how are you feeling about tomorrow? And I said, I'm anxious about talking about anxiety. Like all week, like if you know me, you know anxiety is such a huge part of my adult journey. And uh I just, like, right now, even, like, I'm, like, sweaty, like, my heart's beating, just thinking about this, sitting under this, being reminded about where I've come from, and yet how long I have, how far I have to go in front of me just got me kind of anxious all week. And so if you're here, uh, and, and that's a real thing for you, um, we're glad that you're here. If you're here, maybe you don't even know it's a real thing, but it is a real thing, especially, I find with men, there's a code of silence that we keep to. Uh, we don't talk about anxiety. I don't know if you've seen recently a lot of the mental health discussions that are happening in the NBA. Uh, Tyron Lue and, and different players have taken uh, breaks, and uh, teammates are kind of like even rising up to kind of, on the one hand, <clears throat> some are defending and saying, yes, this is a real thing. Others are kind of mocking and, and making fun of these men as if it's weak to kind of talk about struggles with, uh, with mental health and with anxiety. And so um, six times in this passage... Jesus says, don't be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious. And um, I want you to hear this if you're here, especially if you're a person that struggles with anxiety and fear and worry. All those are kind of interchangeable words here. Um, I don't want you to hear this like Jesus is some like uh, like uh, uh, legalistic, um, you know, just kind of like a, a coach, like that coach you had in high school that like, you know, you make a mistake and he's like, stop it, like stop it, knock it off, quit doing that, okay? Jesus here is not doing that. This, this is a command here, but it's more of an invitation. I want you to hear this as like, 
You don't have to worry. So it's a command, but it's a comforting command. You don't have to worry. Like Jesus is saying, stop freaking out about your life. I've got this. That, that's kind of the spirit you need to hear this. is not an angry parent. This is much more uh, a, a high priest, as Hebrews says, who's lived where we've lived, who knows the temptations, who knows the vulnerabilities, who knows what it's like to be in a body. And not just a body that's like a meat suit that like Jesus just put on and, and, and then like took off, right? Like Jesus lived an embodied life. John chapter 1 says the incarnation was God himself becoming flesh, becoming one of us. And that after Jesus died, he rose from the dead, not just spiritually, but physically. So this physical embodied existence, Jesus understands what it's like to face everything that we faced and yet to do it. Uh, as the perfect human being, and to show us what it looks like to be human. And one of those areas is dealing with our anxiety. And for some of us, that anxiety is like a low-grade hum. I suspect uh, no one, just kind of the general demographics of our church, if you're in your 20s, uh, maybe early 30s, anxiety is just like this thing over here sometimes that kind of pops up. But it's more like a a low-grade hum. You know, it's not anything that dominates your life, your imagination, your thinking. Um, For others of us, though, it's like being immersed in a surround sound theater. It's the best way to describe it. Or just, the, it, it pulsates through your body. It's a daily reality. You wake up anxious. You're anxious throughout the day. You go to bed anxious. You wake up in the middle of the night. You, you, you get, you know, spinning out on anxiety. And it's a, it's a significant problem for us. And yet we don't know what to do with it. Because oftentimes, I mean, let's be real. Like the church is not a safe place to talk about that. You ever had that conversation where you come to the church and you think that people are going to help you? And then you confess, like, hey, I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with fear. And people are like, you just don't have enough faith, right? Like, you, you need to just believe and trust as if, like, you know, that, like, sprinkles some magical pixie dust on you. And then, like, it just magically goes away. Um, the Bible's just not that simple. Although Jesus will call this out as a faith issue, the prescription is not just have more faith. Um, it's learn what it looks like to be fully human. So anxiety, what's encouraging about this is this is just an ancient problem, right? Like this has been going on since the very beginning when our first parents uh, tried to uh, run away from God and what has been experienced ever since you could call just like uh, an ancient separation anxiety that we have from God, right? Like this, this longing we have to be reconciled to God that started in Genesis 3 and that continues to be a problem for us in Jesus rather than condemning it, rather than trying to deny it or push it down, just walks right into the living room and he has a seat. And he says, hey, can we talk? I'd love to, to show you what it looks like to walk through your anxiety, not to deny it, not to deify it, but to walk through it. And then on the other side of that, find healing and wholeness. And so I want to talk about that today. Before I do, again, this is something that we tend to see as a modern problem. And lots of people talk about uh, anxiety, but lots of people are writing about it. One of my favorite uh, songwriters is a man named Jason Isbell. Went to see him here just a few weeks ago, and he uh, released uh, an album. He is just one of those haunting, raw, vulnerable artists. He writes about uh, uh, emotions quite a bit, and uh, he has a song on his most recent album, which was released. Nashville Sound is critically acclaimed and won some Grammys. And one of his songs, which I hadn't heard until the concert, actually was Anxiety. And, and so he talks about anxiety, and here's what he says: Anxiety. How do you always seem to get the best of me? Now, I've adjusted this because we have some kids in the room. Uh, I'm out here living in a fantasy. I can't enjoy a thing. Anxiety. Why am I never where I'm supposed to be? 
Even with my lover sleeping close to me, I'm wide awake and I'm in pain. This is the reality he invites us into. And he goes on throughout the verses to describe these different things in his life that are supposed to bring joy. And yet he keeps experiencing disillusionment and this kind of gnawing fear that it's just he's, he's not measuring up. He's not keeping up. He can't really enjoy it because everything in life one day going to be taken away from him. Right. So if everything can be taken away, if I have all of these aspirations and hopes and desires, and yet these things on which I'm setting my desire can be taken away from me, that space of vulnerability creates an anxiety in us. W.H. Auden, the great poet and writer, um, not long ago, decades ago, also wrote about this in a book, a uh, collection of essays called The Age of Anxiety. And I don't recommend you read it unless you're into literature. It's a tome. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages. But one little quote from The Age of Anxiety. Here's what he says. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play, otherwise known as Broderpool on Thursday night. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Many generations ago, the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote quite a bit on anxiety, we call him the doctor of dread, uh, had this to say about anxiety. All existence makes me anxious. From the smallest fly to the mysteries of the incarnation, the whole thing is inexplicable. I, most of all. To me, all existence is infected. I, most of all. My distress is enormous, boundless. No one knows it except God in heaven, and he will not console me. So, we're not the first ones to struggle with anxiety. So I want us to talk about this today. What is anxiety? Where does it come from? What can anxiety teach us? Anxiety can be a teacher for us. It can be a mentor for us. Um, it can teach us some things about what it means to be human. Um, and then what do we do with our anxiety? Those are the questions that we want to ask in our time together. So let's start here with the words of Jesus. What is anxiety and where does it come from? Like I love that Jesus just names it. He doesn't just let it sit out there and, and, and kind of skirt around it. He names it. Therefore, I tell you, he says, do not be anxious or worried or preoccupied about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, <clears throat> nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus puts his finger on the trinity of human worry, uh, you know, fashion, food, and uh, good beverage, right? Like these things that we spend so much time thinking about, uh, obsessing over, preoccupying ourselves with. Um, he says, don't be anxious about those things. Verse uh, 30, he also adds, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And this again is where he enters in and, and deepens the discussion, O you of little faith. So what, is it, what does it look like? Like many of us are so unaware that we carry around anxiety. We're so disconnected from our bodies, you know. Um, especially if you grew up in church, you were kind of taught probably to not think about your body. The church, if you grew up in kind of a evangel typical evangelical church, you were taught that the body doesn't really matter, that it's kind of a secondary thing. Again, like this meat suit idea, this is just something that we're going to shed one day. 
and, and, and so body's kind of bad or dirty, uh, and the spirit's good, so we over-spiritualize everything. We talk about uh, things in very cloaked uh, spiritual language. But notice he doesn't say here, and we'll get to this in a minute, he doesn't say don't worry about your body. He says just don't reduce your life to your body. And so pay attention to your body. Learn to pay attention to what's happening inside of you. But for many of us, we don't understand anxiety because we just not really thought about it uh, very much, although we feel it every day. We carry it around oftentimes. Um, so what does it feel like to be gripped by anxiety, right? Anxiety is this interesting result of three interrelated processes, physiological, cognitive, and behavioral, right? So physiologically in our bodies, we experience these sensations. Maybe you call it stress, uh, but here's some of the, the symptoms and what it can feel like. It can feel like a racing heart. It can feel like clammy hands, shallow breathing, restlessness. You know that feeling when they're like, you're always on, like you come home from work, you've had a big day, you've amped up, you know, cortisol levels are high, serotonin levels are high, and you get home and you just can't come down. It's just like the, the uh, it's kind of like a record that just continues to play or like a car engine. Think of a car engine that's been turned on. This used to be the case you could do this, uh, and you could take the key out, and yet the engine would still run, and it feels like somebody's got their foot down on the gas inside of you, and it's just going on and on and on, and you can't seem to turn it off, or you wake up in the middle of the night, and your heart is racing, and your mind is racing, and you're imagining all kinds of things that are happening to you. Maybe you're dreaming about things. This is the kind of restlessness that is anxiety. It can manifest as fatigue or muscle trembling, muscle tension, a lump in your throat, backaches, Head tension, headaches, stomach aches, like that feeling of a knot in your stomach. These are all physiological, can be physiological symptoms related to anxiety. And then what happens is that embodied, those sensations, those emotions, um, those body states that we're feeling begin to influence the way that we think. Now, typically, there's been kind of a, a, a disconnect between the mind and the body. But what we're finding over the last you know, 30 years of, which is what the Bible taught all along, we're finding this again in what you call effective neuroscience. If you look at just brain research, there's a great book that you can read called The Emotional Life of the Brain, if you're interested in learning this. But our emotions and our body states actually influence cognition and cognitive behavior and ways of thinking, right? So things that are happening in my body begin to influence and shape how I process life. Cognitive, literally, you can see it. Different areas of the brain are lighting up as we experience different emotional states. And so as much as we like to think... We're brains on a stick. We're cerebral people who are just rational and intellectual. Science is actually telling us just the opposite. There is a very primal and integral relationship between our minds and our bodies. And so what happens then as we experience that stress is we start to get anxious in our thinking. We start to orient our thinking to line up with our embodied feelings. And so we process worried thoughts. We begin to orient ourselves around worst case scenarios. This is the kind of person that can walk into any room and they just start looking for the fire exits, right? They're looking and they're, they have like 10 contingency plans mapped out in their mind. If a terrorist walks into the room, what are we going to do? Let's make sure everybody's trained. These are people that love, you know, like tornado drills and schools and things of that nature. Like they just always are afraid of, of what could happen, what will go wrong. This is like, you know, your classic chicken little, the sky is falling. Let's make sure that we're ready for the worst case scenario. It's an imagination that runs out of control and is always anticipating the worst case scenarios. And then what begins to happen is that heightened fear, that dread um, begins to kind of take over our persona and becomes a pattern 
and um, and we're unable really to distinguish between what's really scary and what is not so scary. And then uh, our behavior begins to follow, and so we actually begin to uh, to uh, restrict our behavior. You notice this: the older that you get, the more afraid you are of weird, random things. It's like I'm not going to go there; it just feels scary. And so we like get really confining and restrictive in our behaviors, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in this morass called anxiety. Now, where does that anxiety come from, right? Like, Scripture gives us a rich, multifaceted view, right? Like, the world is going to tell us uh, that uh, anxiety comes uh, in two kind of ways, and the Bible doesn't deny these, but it also says more. So, anxiety is an ancient problem, and, and there are a couple different sources. One is just biology. We've talked about that. You have what's called an autonomic nervous system, right? That unconsciously oftentimes regulates, you know, body, uh, blood pressure and heartbeat rates and all this kind of stuff. Uh, again, I'm no scientist, but I know uh, my system can go crazy. Uh, so we have that. Now, here's the thing. That shapes and influences, but does not call, it is not causative and determinative for anxiety, right? There's been conversations over the years about is anxiety a chemical imbalance in the brain where there's a lower serotonin rate, there's absolutely no definitive scientific proof of that, right? If you want to read more about that, Robert Whitaker has done quite a bit of research to debunk that theory that anxiety is just a disease caused by chemical imbalances in the brain. It's actually not true, okay? Uh, So uh, it shapes, but it doesn't determine uh, uh, anxiety ultimately. Another piece of that is social architecture, so the social systems we grow up in, some of us grow up with highly anxious parents. You know what I'm talking about? Like that mom or that dad that was always freaking out, run all the contingencies. I mean, uh, I did a wedding last week and Brandon's in here and uh, he was talking about uh, his wife when he was growing up. Uh, his sister was sharing like how she had manuals and she would do like intensive training drills with them. And they were like, you know, eight years old. I'm like, if this happens, then we're going to do this. And here's how to respond to this. I mean, Anxious, right? Like anxious family systems that's got to come from somewhere. Uh, what's interesting, uh, again, physiologically, is that we have these things called mirror neurons. And as early as just a couple weeks old, we begin to reflect back to our parents, their body states. So where you see an anxious parent, you can see anxious babes. You can see anxious children. It shows up in the research. Cultural chaos, right? We live in a world that is anxious. Trauma can definitely play a part. So things that happened to us in the past become templates or patterns that we then extrapolate out into the future because I've been hurt, because I've been wounded, because I've been abused. Now that becomes just kind of encoded and inscribed into our way of being in the world. And so we move out very anxious. Uh, Jesus takes us, though, a bit deeper. So it's not just biology. It's not just social architecture. Jesus says ultimately underneath this, anxiety is not primarily a disease it is a symptom of a deeper spiritual reality. Again, it doesn't mean that biology doesn't matter, that social systems don't matter. Jesus does say, though, it does involve our faith, right? Like at the core, anxiety is excavating different parts of our soul that are experiencing that primal separation anxiety we talked about in Genesis chapter 3. So he puts his finger on this and he says, what's happening ultimately in anxiety, even if we're not aware of it, is that Um, we're attempting to play God instead of trust God. We're attempting to play God instead of trust God. I want to control the future. In a sense, I want to play God instead of submitting myself and surrendering myself to God. So there's all of this 
anxiety. He said it's rooted in spiritual realities and gets manifested in social systems and our biological wiring. All of that comes together to create anxiety. Now we live in a little bit of a different cultural moment than what Jesus, the people that Jesus is talking to here. So there are some similarities and there are differences between what we experience and what they experienced in the first century. Jesus's audience was uh, subsistence farmers and fishermen, right? These are working class folk who lived under uh, the shadow, in the shadow of the imperial Roman uh, Empire. And so their basic anxiety was tied to what does it look like to trust in God or in the gods for those in secular Roman society um, to meet our basic needs of safety and security? And this is not uh, abject poverty here. This is not war and famine, right? This is just people who are struggling paycheck to paycheck, um, who were just struggling to figure out what does it look like for God to meet my basic needs for safety and security. Ours is a little bit different, right? We live, for most of us, in a different world than they lived in. Ours is what Huxley famously called this brave new world of success and technology and uh, really just another word for control. We have these like regimes of control. Uh, we have capitalism that kind of fuels a lot of this. Uh, Alan de Botton in his great book, he's a, a kind of a pop philosopher, uh, he calls this status anxiety. We have all of this ambition. He says anxiety is the handmaiden of contemporary ambition. We have massive ambition, massive desires, unfettered, historically uh, unprecedented opportunities to accomplish and to achieve. And what happens is uh, he calls it the, the power of the reference group. We, we tend to peer ourselves with others around us who look like us and run with us. And then we, we have social media, which just is like sewage that just brings all of it to us all the time. And so we're constantly, he says, looking around feeling as if we're behind, feeling as if we're not where we should be, right? Harvard Business just did a study of millennials. I mean, this is epidemic, right? When you look at uh, prescription medication, it's this feeling that I am behind. I am not where I should be in comparison to my benchmarks. And so we're anxious because of this pressure that we feel to be successful, to be accomplished in whatever way we define that. And, and this pressure really is to secure our own happiness and our own comfort. But unlike the first century, which was an enchanted world that believed in the supernatural, we live in this disenchanted individualism, right? Where all the pressure's on me, right? With my resources, my intelligence, my education, my technical know-how, my ambition, my drive, I've got to make sense of my world and I've got to get some stuff done or else I'm not going to be happy. And so we've kind of set ourselves up for this anxiety. Now, however we define uh, the differences and the similarities, the reality is Jesus says, don't be anxious. Anxiety is essentially, across all generations, preoccupation with future. Preoccupation with future comfort, future security. It's compulsive. It's generalized. Fear is very specific. Anxiety is more nonspecific and diffused. It's obsessive, right? It causes us to fixate on uh, things. It's this kind of internal disturbance at the emotional level that disrupts our lives. So one of the tactics of Satan in our lives, I believe, and I think the Bible teaches, is to keep us oriented to the future, living in the future, thinking about the future, obsessing with the future. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the great book Screwtape Letters which is a conversation between 
uh, an uncle and his kind of apprentice nephew talking about how to tempt human beings. And he says one of the core temptations is that uh, uh, Satan wants to keep us in the future. He says, uh, we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present. If, if by so doing, we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other. Dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using the now as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. He wants us to live in the present, to be obsessed with the present, or the future, excuse me. This is so much of my story, right? Like, I, I, I resonate so deeply with this text because it's been a struggle for me. I grew up in a, a great home. My folks are here, so I, of course, I want to say nice things about them, thankful for them. Um, but when I hit my 20s, I was uh, on staff at a couple mega churches and was experiencing what you might call success in that kind of uh, realm, which is kind of a weird thing to talk about with religion and church, but it's what we do. And, 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 and it's the South, right? So, like, it's like a church is like a chia pet. You add water and things grow. Um, but I was experiencing that success, quote unquote, very early in life. And then in my late 20s, I began to uh, just recognize in my body an increased level of anxiety. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know what it was. I literally started freaking out for no reason uh, to the point where at about 27, I woke up in the middle of the night. We had to call uh, EMS because I was having panic attacks. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was dying. Uh, I, I, I choked on a Pop-Tart one time. I have so much anxiety. Ch- choke on a Pop-Tart? I don't know. But like I, I choked on a Pop-Tart. I was having stress, like, you know, irregular heartbeats, like all this kind of stuff. And just come to find out that this is what you call anxiety, right? And so the battle for me over the last 10 years has been learning what it looks like to live through that kind of chronic anxiety. And a big thing for me, so just application for us uh, here, I think Jesus is inviting us to just name it. Name our anxiety. Call it what it is. You know, we like to, we are masters in the West at spinning anxiety and trying to make it productive and sexy and attractive. Like people sell books uh, on anxiety, right? Like we fuel anxiety. We, in our 20s and 30s, we call this like reframing or maybe spinning. In our 20s and 30s, we call it drive. We call it entrepreneurial vision. We call it, man, that person's got a motor. Man, they're crushing it. Uh, they've got all this forward-looking energy. And again, I'm not against being an entrepreneur. We are pro people uh, starting businesses and, and, and working hard. But in your 40s and 50s, you begin to realize, late 30s into your 40s and 50s, you begin to realize what got me here is not going to get me there. And what I used to call drive, I now call the crash. Right? Anybody, only the people over 40 are laughing, right? Crash, burnout, hitting the wall, because it's not sustainable, right? There is productive anxiety that can be helpful, but it is not sustainable, and it inevitably leads us to a toxic anxiety that overwhelms us and crushes us and ruins lots of things in our lives. Ruined, it's ruined families. It's ruined parent-child relationships. It's ruined businesses, right? That pace, that intensity, that speed, that urgent sense of I've got to get stuff done. I've got to do it yesterday, and I've got to do it at 100 miles an hour. That drive could be anxiety, and yet we just normalize it. It's just the way that we talk. It's the air that we breathe as Americans. And so we need to be careful, and we need to make sure that we're naming it and calling it what it is. Like, do you, do you have the courage just to say, hey, I'm feeling anxious. 
I know this is weird to talk about, but like I'm feeling afraid. I'm, I'm living in the future, but I'm so scared. I'm so afraid that this won't happen or this need won't get met or my family's not going to be cared for because it often arises from a place of genuine desire. Like I just want to care for my family. I want to, I want to, I want to do good work. And then it can just turn toxic. And then we find ourselves trapped and alone and isolated. And that's when really bad things happen, right? There's nothing more dangerous than somebody trapped alone in their anxiety. That's when suicide happens. That's when depression happens, right? That's when all kinds of disorders roll out into our 30s and 40s. And so the second question I want us to ask is, what does this teach us about being human? And we'll just kind of move quickly through here. What does this teach us about being human? Jesus goes on to say, don't be anxious. Look at the birds, right? Look at the birds. Kind of a weird thing for Jesus to say. Look, birds, you know, like up here in the sky. Let's look around at nature. Like, and this is not him as an, uh, just a philosophy professor. He's literally standing on a hillside going, look, there's a bird. Like, look at the ravens. Look at the lilies, these wild flowers that grow out in ancient Palestine. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? He's saying you're not God. You're not in control. Even if you try, you can't add time to your life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, those who don't follow after God, seek after all these things. They run after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So, some of us are reading this going, yeah, that'd be nice. Jesus is like John Lennon. Imagine if, you know, like imagine this world. That would be so nice. You know, it's like, but, but I want you to hear this. Jesus is not some Pollyannish dreamer. Jesus is not uh, like here, uh, if you're familiar with the quote, passing through the seven levels of the candy cane forest, through the sea of twir- swirly, twirly gumdrops and walking through Lincoln Tunnel. Okay, he's not Elf. He's not Will Ferrell laying out this, you know, like magical world that, man, wouldn't it be nice if this was true? He's, no, this is the reality of life in my Father's world. Because the kingdom of God is here. Remember back in chapter 4, he says, stop and turn around, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. Heaven is coming down to earth. And that means everything that you think about reality is changing. So wake up. Because what you're actually doing is you're listening to things and messages and stories that are unreality. But I've come to bring the true reality and to invite you into what is actually your future. So a couple things that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying here that God doesn't care about our mundane bodily needs. He doesn't say, uh, don't, uh, don't worry about uh, just your life. He talks about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, um, nor about your body, what you'll put on. He's not saying God doesn't care about those things. Okay? Um, he, he, he's not saying um, that God is you know, just not concerned with our bodies. Notice he says... Um, your life is more than food and your life is more than your body. Not less than, but more, right? We tend to reduce our lives down to consumption and acquisition 
And he's saying your life is more than what you can buy and put on your body. Your life is more than what you can purchase and put into your palate, right? Through your palate, into your stomach, right? Don't reduce yourself. But it's not less than. Notice he goes on to say, your father knows that you need all these things. Need. Not wish you had them, but you need them to survive. Food, drink, and clothing are necessary. And your father knows that you need all of those things. Emotionally, physically, mentally, he knows that you need them all. And he cares about them. Right? He provides for the birds. He provides for the lilies. And here's the crazy thing. God cares about them not just functionally, but aesthetically, right? Like he cares about beauty and he cares about uh, meeting the need. So don't think that God here is saying he doesn't care about our bodies. He's also saying, um, it's not, he's not saying that we don't need to work hard or plan for the future, right? Birds are busy creatures. If you do any bird watching, we've got cardinals and all kinds of birds in my backyard. I mean, they're busy, always, you know, building nests and, 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 and uh, feeding their young and, and scavenging, right? Like birds are very busy creatures, and so God's not saying, well, just, you know, close your eyes, click your heels and say there's no place like home. Sit in your basement, play video games, and God will just, you know, kind of like drop provision on you. No, he's saying look at the birds. Like Proverbs, look to the ant, right, who works hard, but God takes care of the needs. God meets natural needs through natural means. He's not saying don't plan for your future. He's saying don't worry about your future. Don't be anxious. Don't fret. Don't get obsessed. Don't get absorbed and preoccupied with your needs. God knows what you need, and he will give you exactly what you need every day. Last thing we should say here, he's not saying that we should close our eyes to poverty, suffering, and social injustice. Very real. He says birds fall to the ground. Right? Trouble happens, bad things happen. Grass burns up. Each day, he says, has a lot of trouble. It has enough trouble for today. So this is not God ignoring the needs or saying, you know what? Don't worry about your neighbor who has needs, right? Like, I'm going to provide for them. This has been used as a license for some to not care about the social needs of the world because, after all, God will do that. What do I care about the person who lives in poverty in the city? No. We have a responsibility. He's going to say that in other places. Uh, He's going to teach us to pray, give us our daily bread. He invites us into that process of being a part of uh, fighting for justice in the world. And so this is not an excuse for us. This doesn't let us off the hook. What he's saying, though, is I'll take care of people. But what is he saying? What is he saying? Name our anxiety. Slow down and think. Slow down and think. Look. He's saying, look. Just consider. Think about this, slow down, we're often moving so fast. The pace of our lives is going, 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 we're running, 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 right? From business meeting to business meeting, from relationship to relationship, from city to city, right? Like some of you have spent the last couple of years just relocating your life, thinking if I just get to the next thing, if I can just get this next promotion, if I can just get to this next city, then it'll take care of what's broken inside of me, the anxiety that I'm feeling. And what Jesus is inviting us to do is to slow You look around. Nature is declaring the glory of God. Do you see it? Do you have time to slow down? Like you can't efficiently look at birds or consider flowers in the parking lot. You have to slow down, stop, get on your knees, change perspective, and watch and be patient.
That's the imitation. What do we learn when we look at nature? It's all around us. Here's what we learn. You have a Father who is loving and who knows what you need and He's powerful and He's present. You matter to Him and He's committed to your good. Second thing we learn is that you're not in control. Like, why, do, why are we so busy? Why are we so anxious? Because we think it's all on us. If I don't make this deal, if I don't make this call, if I don't do this, then I'm going to starve or then I'm not going to be significant. I'm not going to have the security that I want for my future, right? Like, we're anxious because we think we're in control. If I do these things, A plus B plus C will give me D. But, like, look at your life over the last five years or ten years or five, like, months. Like, did any, like, the majority of the assumptions you made about your future come true? No. You don't know. You're not in control. And here's the, here's the reality. 90% of the time, you're wrong about the future. Isn't that comforting? Like 90% of the time, you're going to be wrong about the future. But here's the crazy thing. The 10% of the time that you're right keeps you in the anxiety business. Well, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, something bad is going to happen. You're going to die. Okay? Like, but you're like, see, I told you people are dying. You know, you know those people, it's just like something bad is have this feeling, somebody's going to get shot. Okay, somebody will get shot. 150 people were murdered last year. Yes, it will happen. Like bad things happen. Things get stolen. Uh, people get cancer. And that becomes just like this self-fulfilling prophecy, and it gives you an excuse to kind of live in this bubble of anxiety, right? You're like bubble boy. You're just in this bubble constantly surrounded by and living in your anxiety. But here's the thing. In the Bible... Worry and anxiety, unlike our culture, is not a virtue. In the Bible, people who try to predict the future and live in the future, you know what they're called? Witches. They're called false prophets. You know what happens to false prophets in the Bible? They get stoned in the Old Testament. Now, next time you make a prediction... Somebody in your missional community is freaking out about the future. Ask them to write down the prediction. And if it comes true, great, they're a prophet. If not, then take them out back. You know, no, we don't, we don't stone people to death. But think about that for yourself. Your mind, half of the things you're worried about, 90% of the things you're worried about in the future are not going to happen. They're not going to come true in the way that you think. And so the anticipation of it is often worse than the actual reality of it. Mark Twain once said, I'm a very old man and have suffered a great many misfortunes, most of which never happened. So stone the false prophet inside of you, right? Like when that begins to rise up, just say, hey, you remember five years ago when you said this and it didn't happen? You were wrong. You're a false prophet, right? Like this anxiety is teaching us. It's reminding us we are dependent. We are vulnerable. We are contingent beings. We can't know the future. We can't predict the trends. We don't know. The only thing we can predict with 100% of certainty is you and I will die. How's that for some existential angst, right? Like we are going to die. But we know that if we are in Christ, we will live forever. And God promises to begin to bring that eternity into our present life right now. So what do we do with our anxieties we close? What do we do with our anxiety? I see three options. If there's no king and if there's no kingdom, the first two make total sense to me. One is to detach. 
right? Like the world is crazy, so I'm going to build my fortress. I'm going to build my little wall. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going I'm to get my bunker and my shotgun, and I'm just going to detach from people. Now, we don't do that maybe physically, but we can do that emotionally. You put up the walls, and how many of us are constantly doing that? We're doing this game right here. Like, I'm going to let you in, but not all the way in. I'm going to be cool and indifferent and detached and, and distant and carry around this low-grade cynicism and sarcasm about the world because I've been hurt and the world's a scary place and that's the only way I know how to defend myself. And we live in those bunkers and we can become detached. But like Dr. Phil says all the time, like, how's that working for you? How's that cynicism working for you? Is it leading you into fullness of life? Is that isolation helping you flourish as a human being, right? Like men in their 40s, the greatest epidemic happening with men right now is by the time they're 45, they have no friends. Boston Globe just wrote an article about this. It is, I mean, increased rates of anxiety and loneliness and isolation. I mean, it is epidemic with men. They go weeks and months without meaningful conversation and meaningful touch. And men, you know what I'm talking about there. Just you know, be appropriate, okay? Like, I just mean like physical connection. So we can detach. We can... We can just drive deeper, right? Like that's what many of us do. We can try to befriend our anxiety and indulge our anxiety and leverage it for a more platform, more success, a bigger uh, influence. And what happens when we begin to do that is for a while it'll work, right? Like you can go faster, you can execute. We, we call that competency. Oftentimes in the business world, I can know everything, be everywhere, do everything at this insane speed. But what happens again in your 40s and your 50s is you begin to break down, you begin to slow down, you get overwhelmed and you burn out. It does not work. And if you need any evidence, ask anybody in the room over 45. There's like five of us in the room. There's five of y'all in the room, okay? It doesn't work. The third option Jesus presents with us, presents us with today, is to redirect our anxiety. Redirect our anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Notice he doesn't say, stop seeking, kill your ambition. No. The word seek here is, is, very, is interchangeable with drive, with ambition, with anxiety. He's saying, don't stop seeking. You can't. Like, we are human beings created to seek things, right? Created to pursue meaning and purpose and to have this kind of internal angst in us. It's part of being made in the image of God. We're builders, Genesis chapter 1 says. Seek first, though. Make it your great priority, your great ambition to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you as a bonus. Like, right, this is God's bonus benefit package, right? Like, you seek first my kingdom and I will take care of all of your basic needs. Therefore, it says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Kind of like tongue-in-cheek, ironic here. For tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself, right? Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Like today's got enough. Why are you doubling down on anxiety by bringing in tomorrows? Today is enough. Your spouse is enough. Your kids are enough. Your job is enough today. So why borrow on the future? You end up in poverty. Emotionally speaking. Redirect your anxiety. And it just came to me this week because we just kind of close here. This was such an aha moment for me um, in dealing with anxiety because anxiety is not something that Jesus is just inviting us to deal with by going directly at it. He doesn't say deal with your anxiety by dealing with your anxiety. He says you don't have to worry. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to be anxious because you've been freed. You've been liberated in my kingdom to seek a greater ambition. 
right? He's saying, don't freak out because if you freak out all of that time, all of that energy, all of that strategizing, all of that worrying, all of those dreams, all of that living in the future keeps you distracted from living in the present. It keeps you distracted from pursuing with reckless abandon the people and the places and the times and the relationships and the opportunities that God has placed in front of you right now. Like last night, I'm worried uh, about getting home on time. And we're at Aldi making that last shop. It's like 7.50. They close at 8. We're in a hurry. And some people approach us. Do you have money? And, of course, I'm like, I don't have time for this. And I don't have anything on me. And I'm like pushing my wife into the car. Let's go. We've got to get home. We've got to get the kids to bed. I've got to preach tomorrow. I'm, you know, super spiritual. I don't have time for these, you know, these needs here. Just confession. And my wife's like, hold on, can I just go, like, I have 75 cents, can I go give him 75 cents? And with my wife, you just need to know, 75 cents is never just 75 cents. It turns into all kinds of things, because she is a much better human being than me. And so it turned into giving some bread, giving some crackers, uh, providing some basic food and needs that they, that they had. And, and I was just so convicted, and then just reminded that, like, in my worry, in my anxiety, I am missing. These simple opportunities in the present that God has put right in front of me. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Give him your everything, right? Don't be anxious, Paul says, about anything. But in everything through prayer and petition, bring your request before God. Be in communion with God. Love him. Seek him. Know him. Be loved by him. Cast all your cares and all your anxieties on him, Peter says. For he cares for you. Fling him is the word there. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow, James says. You don't know what's going to happen. Stop being arrogant and proud, he says. Be grounded in the present. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then turn around and love others as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, as God has done for you. I mean, it sounds simple, but that's the call here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get out of your anxiety by seeking the kingdom of God. And then all these secondary things will be given to you. All the opportunities. Like our our pursuit of anxiety denies us the very things that we're looking for in anxiety. Security, comfort, peace, significance, community, our basic needs. Like the more anxious we are about that, the harder it is to secure those things. And we know that they won't last anyway. Jesus invites us to be grounded in the present. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself, and I will take care of you. This is the invitation from Jesus to us. And this is the invitation for us as we come to communion. So I want to invite you right where you're at to receive these words from Jesus. Do not be anxious. Be anxious for my kingdom. Be anxious for my righteousness. And I'll take care of you. Jesus knew all about anxiety, right? He's not here as one who just lived this like Pollyanna life. He, he was about to go to the cross. He lays down his life. He knows what it's like to experience trouble and heartache and sorrow and anxiety to have your blood capillaries bursting with sorrow and anguish. And yet he says, don't be anxious. I've got this. I've come to live the life that you can live, to die the death that you should have died, to rise from the dead, to give you everything that you cannot produce in your own strength, with your own competency. I've got the future, and not only do I have the future, I am the future. Trust me. That's the invitation for us at communion. Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, giving us all that we could not provide for ourselves.
And so don't be anxious. You have nothing to worry about. Stop freaking out if you're in Christ. You have all that you need to thrive. So just remember that. Press into that. Lean into that truth today. As you come and you take this body, maybe it's an opportunity for confession. Man, I am freaking out, God. I'm freaking out about my future, about who I'm going to marry, about my singleness, about my marriage, about my kids, about my job, about my financial security. Right? Like, I am so anxious. And then you just stop and pay attention. Name it. Bring it before God and ask God to help me through it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you, maybe you just pray to God during this time. Don't, don't come while we take communion. This is an opportunity for those who are followers of Jesus to bring their cares before him. Right? And to be reminded that he's for us and with us. Maybe you stay in your seat and you just cry out to God. God, would you help me? Would you help me believe? Help me to help make these things a reality in my life and my heart. I'm going to pray for us. And then if you're going to take communion, we have stations at the front, stations at the back. You can come as we sing, take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup and then return to your seat. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have called us out of anxiety. God, we know that anxiety will